Well, good morning. I like your church. A little scared. We had the ladies up here with the brilliant leotards, followed by the illusionists, and then there's me. And uh, I don't wear leotards. I don't do tricks. But I love Catalyst Church. You say, well, how do you know? You know I've never, we've never heard you speak before. Um, well, my wife and I lived in Australia um, almost all of our adult lives. Uh, one of the most difficult things we ever did was leaving Australia in 2006. Hyperventilated in the plane all the way across the Pacific when we left. But this church had a huge catalyst in our life. Because of Pastor Philip and Catalyst Church, uh, I met uh, um, Bill Hybels back in 1992, whenever it was his first visit here to Australia, which hugely not only transformed my ministry, the church I led, which was at Everton Hills at that time, and as a result, many people got saved, found Jesus, because of what I learned. Just think that lives have been changed for eternity because of this church. And then a few years go by, and I was at what's now Nexus Church in Everton Park, and it was a point of life where I knew there was an intersection coming up, but I couldn't see any alternatives, and I sat in the back row right there, and I heard a speaker by the name of Wayne Cadero, you know Pastor Wayne? And I heard him speak, and I clearly heard Jesus speak to me in the back row of that church, of this church. And he said to me, uh, you need to get to know that man. You need to go visit that church. And then the, another thought came to mind. You need to go and live there. And through a whole amazing God story, I ended up being on staff at New Hope and was actually able to welcome Carl and Jessica when they came to visit on two different occasions and help set up some things so that they got to see the inside of the life at New Hope. And that was amazing. But out of that, all sorts of other things happened, as Carl described. Um, my, my life is kind of like a leaf in the wind. The Holy Spirit has taken me and moved me from place to place. And uh, I'm just excited to be in the journey and the story. And today, of course, Pastor Philip is one of the oversight pastors for the church I lead. We're halfway between Microsoft and Boeing. So in our church are the people who make 747s. And the other side are people who do uh, Microsoft Word and all that kind of stuff. All those people attend our church, and we're just seeing lots of people get saved, and the church growing and exploding in size, and it's just so great to be here. Philip brings just a wealth of wisdom and life and experience, but I came here actually to check out Carl, because <laughs> I want to know where this guy came from, because we need more people like him. So I've, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got one fan out there, and they got... <laughs> increase the number. <laughs> but I have discovered where it is, uh, where he has been fully developed because we've been staying with Philip and Mandy and uh, there should be some stuff here on the screen here. Where my topic today is be orange and by the time we get done today you're all going to want to be orange. We're going to talk about the unmissable appointments that you and I need to have at home with our kids. Even if you're grandparents or even you may be single, you see, we're all in a community here. We are raising up the next generation. It's so significant. And I think on your seat when you came in are some notes that you can use to follow today that will help us as we go along. But more about what's happening in, in Carl's life. We stayed, of course, with Philip and Mandy, and they have just built a new home nearby the church here. And uh, it's, it's, you know how you know when you move, you don't have everything available? Well, it was breakfast time, and they're making bacon and eggs, and it's smelling good, and it, the, the eggs are cooking. They're just getting ready to flip over, and Mandy sings out, we don't have a spatula. 
And, you know, this is crisis. How are you going to get the eggs out of the pan? Well, we did some quick thinking. Mandy pulls out this aluminum tray. She gets some scissors, and Philip's just there dumbfounded. And with some quick Aussie ingenuity, this is what we did. We actually did a little video. You ready to see a video? <laughs> Kitchen life at the Mutzelberg home. Here we go. Here is Philip. He's got some volume. Australians can't afford Bachelors, eggs, oh, yeah. So, you watch this one. You watch this. Look at that. That one just, we're getting the hang of it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so, why did I show you that? Well, it's the best I can do to magic tricks. <laughs> uh, what you see there is just real life. And we sat down at the table, and while we're eating, Philip uh, started telling me the story of the beautiful dining room table. Here's a picture of the dining room table. And they've had this thing for like 33 years, and he told about the guy who built it, and blah, 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 the whole, whole nine yards. He said when they first moved into the house, they had another table, and the family all reacted. Carl and Betsy said, where's the table? You know, the table that we sat at as a family where... You know, we grew up, and, you know, you carved your name in while you're doing homework. Our, our family table has that in it. You know, the stuff of family, I see a family table, it's almost as sacred as like an altar. It is this holy piece of furniture where you, you live, you laugh, you cry, you work out life problems, you have arguments and resolve relationships. All these things happen at the most simple thing of family life, the kitchen table. Can I tell you where your pastor came from? He came from that table. He came from a godly home. Now, what I have to describe to you in our modern society is sometimes not just an ideal. It's almost like describing life on the planet Mars. Uh, to explain how a home actually looks and works is so far from our experience. Uh, now, I don't say this to denigrate anyone. Um, you know, life is a journey. Life is tough and life is hard. Uh, we've gone through in my extended family, uh, divorce, remarriage, blended family. I've seen all of those things. I know what it is firsthand. I know. But in the midst of all of that mess of life, God does have a plan. He has a marvelous plan of developing human beings. One psychologist said that the home is a people-making factory. Think about it. It's a place where human beings are created. And we're going to talk about how God does that in your home and your family uh, in your Bible, you can open up to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. It's okay to use your analog version, too, uh, your digital version. My analog gets there faster than your digital one. I'm already there. I'm ready to go. This man here was a $100 million a year CEO of one of the largest investment firms in the world. He oversaw $2 trillion of investment. But I read just recently in the news, saw this headline. It caught my attention. It said, boss at $2 trillion investment firm says 10-year-old daughter made him quit. And he said he got this letter from his 10-year-old daughter, and she listed 22 different events in her life that he had missed, things like her first soccer game, her first day at school, all this stuff that he had missed as a dad. He was so deeply affected by that that he quit his job at $100 million a year Went and got another job for several million dollars a year. You know, you got to make sacrifices in life. <laughs> and as I listened to that, I thought, 
there's a man who's had a wake-up call to what matters in life. And so often we just find ourselves rushing our kids from one stage to the next. If they were, you know, if they're in nappies, we want them out of nappies. If they're toddlers, we want them the next stage. We just want them to keep moving and moving, and we just rush this thing along and don't realize what's happening, that we are growing a next generation right there in our home, around our kitchen and table, around these most simple and basic things in life. Today, where we're going to go, I, I like to call it the big idea. In, at our church, every Sunday, we have the big idea. And if you remember anything, let's remember this, is that um, everything in your kid's future depends on four unmissable appointments in life. And you say, well, what are those? Well, glad you asked. We're actually told in the Bible there are four core appointments that every parent needs to keep with their kids. And in fact, if you're a grandparents, we'll see a, a lot of silver hair out there. You guys are also involved in this as well. You have grandchildren. You have them over. You influence their lives. Some of you are single. You say, well, I, I don't have any kids. Well, you had an opportunity. You did you hear the announcement at the beginning to get involved in kids' ministry? Can I tell you, every church I visit in the world has the same announcement. <laughs> Can we just have some church somewhere that has a surplus of people in kids' ministry <laughs> somewhere? Uh, we all have an opportunity to get influenced. There are four unmissable appointments that take place in the life of your family, and it's found here in Deuteronomy in chapter 6. And in verse uh, 4 through 7, it's also on the sheet there, <clears throat> you can read as well. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk, up, walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. And Jesus, would you make this alive to us through the Holy Spirit? Do you see it there? There are four things. It says, when you sit at home, so obviously there's something important that happens in the sitting. It says, when you walk along the road, it says, when you lie down, and it says, when you get up. The whole formula is there. And what you're impressing upon them is that first little sentence. In fact, this is the core of what it means to be a, a child of God, a, a Jew, is that your, your declaration of who God is. In Hebrew, it's Shema Israel, Ya Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Every Jew is able to recite this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the, your Lord is one. He is not many gods. He is not an idol of stone. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is the core of everything that every Jew believes and that we believe. This is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And somehow this has to get into the hearts of the kids. Now, this is a really tall assignment. Um, the assignment that we have here, and if you, you spend some time looking at the words here, it says that we are to impress this on our children. And when I dug into the word that's behind impress, it's actually talking about sharpening the edge of a knife. If you think about it, your kids go into the world and spend most of their time with friends. You have no control when they walk out of the door who they're going to talk to. They're going to be influenced by teachers, one day by employers, by coaches, by, you know, piano teachers and soccer coaches. It just goes on and on. Your kids are influenced by lots and lots of things in life, and it's as if their edge gets dull. The things that you remind them of get dull. And you and I, for a short period of time, have an influence over them. 
you and I are to impress this on them. We are to have a greater influence in our li the lives of our kids than TV, than video games, than iPods, and things that they hear in the ears and we have no idea what's going inside. We, as parents, are the greatest influence in the lives of our kids. It is an incredible vision that God has given. We are to impress this on them and to sharpen this in their lives. It also says that we're to get this in their hearts. I'm going to show you a picture here of what the idea is. How did that pear get inside of that bottle? I mean, how do you squeeze it into that little opening? Well, there's a secret. You take that wine bottle out to the orchard just early on in the development of that young pear when it's still small enough to fit inside of the bottle. You carefully tie it onto the branch, and that pear will totally grow inside of the bottle. You put some brandy, and it's preserved inside of that bottle. In the same way, you and I, as parents, are putting deep principles in the hearts of our kids, and we want them to stay there and to grow there. The, the best way for the principles of God to get into the hearts of our kids are by hearing words. This is the other thing. We are going to do this by words. It talks about words that you write on your, you know, the little wristbands, the headbands. It, it's even on the doors of your home. Words. Words. Just think about words. These are words of scripture. They are stories that you tell about answers to prayer. These are um, the, the plaques that you have at your house, words. Uh, my wife and I looked around our house one day, and we realized we just didn't have anything Christian on our walls. I know, well, I'm a pastor. We should have lots of that stuff. But we looked around the house, and there was nothing. I said, you didn't realize we don't have any Bible. Anybody could walk in here. They wouldn't even know we're believers. I mean, we had really nice designer stuff from Ikea and all that stuff. And so we went down and got some stuff that had God words on it. This is one that we put up with God, all things are possible. And behind that is a story. There is no human reason why my wife and I should have a house to live in. It's a huge God story. But that little plaque summarizes for us that journey, how God gave us a home. You've got stories too. And there's words that we put onto the walls of our house. Can I tell you how important this is? My family, my ancestors, were some of the first Jews in America. And my, my great-great-great-grandfather, his name was Emmanuel Gonzalez. And to survive as a Jew, he hid all of his Jewishness and just blended into life. And I can tell you the story of generation after generation of moral failure, of business failure, of life failure because of this verse here. The words were not impressed on the children. And my mother and father, when they married, my mother and father got down on their knees. They had no idea. They had never seen a functional home, either one of them. And they said, Lord, on their wedding night, we commit ourselves to raising our family based on biblical principles. My parents have now been married almost 70 years. My dad's 91, my mother's 88, been married like 68, 69 years. And because of these words, can I tell you, these words work. Your family can change a whole generational cycle of dysfunction by embracing the very principles that God has. So here we go in this, this journey. The question is, what has the greatest influence on the development in the heart of your child? Think about it. Are your kids going to be most developed by church? You got a great pastor, you got a great church. Is it going to be at church? Is it going to be in a Christian school? Uh, I was chaplain at uh, what's now Northside um, Christian College in, in Everton Park, and I've been deeply involved in Christian education, saw a lot of wonderful things, but I can tell you that's actually not the answer either. Um, is it going to be at a youth camp or a conference? I met your youth pastor. You got great youth ministries. 
No, I actually don't think, I don't think any of those things are the greatest influence in the life of your kid. The greatest influence is the home. Without question, the home. The influence of dad and mom at home. And it's these verses, these words that teach us how to do it. And they're just four really simple things that make this a part of our life. This is where the orange comes in. Orange is made up of two colors. I've given you a hint, yellow. What's the other one? Oh, wow, it's a slow crowd this morning. What's the other color that makes up orange? Is yellow and? Good, 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 good. Orange is made up of yellow and red. At our church, this is the way we do kids' ministry, we say the church brings the yellow, which is the light of the gospel. The red is the love of the family. And our goal is to bring the parents and the church together and to make our kids orange. We actually call it Orange Town. That's our kids' ministry. We want all of our kids to be orange where these things come together. So we not only teach our children, but we also teach our parents how to impress these things on their kids at home and to take the lesson the next stage forward. And here are the four things. Number one, it says that when you and I sit at home, that means that your kitchen or lounge are places of discipleship. Some of the most important things that will ever develop in the hearts of your kids are going to happen in the kitchen. That is eating. Wow, you're saying, this is good. I like this. You like Anybody out there enjoy eating? Yes. Eating is where lives are transformed. I mean, why else would Jesus have built uh, the entire work that he's done through the church around a meal? In your home, in my home, everything is built around a meal um, where we eat together. Um, there's a picture of the childhood that I grew up in. I'm the little kid down there in the bottom kneeling with the blonde hair. That's my sister sitting next to my auntie. Uh, that's my grandpa with, holding his hat with a stick. What, what's happened there is we've just finished a meal in an old house. The house we, that he lived in was built in 1850. There were no nails. It was put together with wooden pegs. In, in, the, in the eating area, the dining room, there was this huge, big oval table and we would sit there and have dinner together. Uh, they would never allow anything on the table that was in a box or a card, and everything had to be in a proper dish and properly served. Meals were a really significant event. There's my grandma with a little thing over her head. And we just finished this beautiful meal. And then grandpa would have taken out the old Bible, and he would have read. Now, we kids squirmed at the table. We didn't want to hear, but he would get out the Bible and he'd read. And he would have received letters from all of the grandchildren. And so then we would pray and we would go around the table and every one of us would pray about different needs of grandkids. But he loved telling stories. My grandpa had an incredible sense of humor. And he would tell us these stories about life growing up in the 1800s and about all the things that he and his brothers did and the trouble that they got into. And we would laugh and then we'd go outside. And grandma hated this because this would burn a hole in the lawn. But he would start a little fire outside, back in the days when city governments let you do that and you didn't get in trouble. And we'd go out there and we'd roast marshmallows and we'd, we'd cook little hot dogs and we just did family stuff. And some of those people weren't even related to. Those are neighbor kids who just came. What you're seeing there is family life. And that made me, in that picture, there are three pastors that develop because we just did the simple things of applying the Word of God into everyday life. But this is what's happening today. This is an article that comes out of SBS. It actually is a repeat of a story from USA Today. And I, I saw this story a couple of months ago, and I, I was incensed by it. The headline said, let's 
stop idealizing the home-cooked family dinner, and the subtitle says, the stress and cost of home-cooked dinners uh, are probably not worth it. And I read this article, and I wanted to scream at somebody <laughs> because it was just so wrong. I mean, the whole gist of the story is that somehow it, it's just too much bother to get everybody at the table at the same time. And so the result is, you know, we have you know, one kid goes to this room and eats, the other kind goes to this room and eats, and no one actually sits down and eats together at the same table in the, the same way. If you get anything out of the message, get this. God has a plan for your family, and it starts with dinner together. I cannot think of anything more significant in family life than that. If you just went home today and made a decision as a husband and wife, or if you're a single parent, a single mom, a single, a single dad, just go home and have everybody sit at the table at the same time. Your whole life will change and say, well, Phil, that's, that's a you know, pretty you know, high promise. Well, here are some, some practical results of this. I, I did some research once and found for families that actually eat together, the stats say that their children are half as likely to use drugs. The second statistic is they will have fewer friends who use drugs. The simple choice of eating together as a family. Lower stress in the lives of the kids because they're able to talk about the daily problems that they face. They confide in their parents. In other words, they're going to come to you and talk about a problem rather than somebody you don't want them to talk to. Uh, they are five times like, more likely to have good grades. Man, that itself is a reason to eat together. They're going to have healthy eating habits, less likely to be obese, and they're going to uh, um, have a lower risk of suicide. All of that with a simple choice of eating at the same table, the same meal, on a regular basis as a family. You, you think about what the scripture means. What does this mean? Leslie and I raised our kids with these principles. I, I didn't discover until our kids were about six or seven exactly what the family meal did. There was a godly counselor who's part of our church, and she opened my eyes to how significant family dinner was. Before that, I was like a lot of dads. I was there, but I was kind of checked out. And suddenly I realized that I, I, just like I have to lead board meetings in church life, our family dinner was the most important meeting of my entire week, my entire day. It's the choice to actually um, sit together and also to get up together. What does that mean? Is that our family once a day is going to sit at the table and whether they like it or not, because I'm dad, I get to do that, they're all going to sit there together. And they don't leave the table without asking me because we're a family, we're a unit, we're a team, and we're going to really treat with value our time together at the table. And, and today, no phones at the table. Even now, our, our daughter's boarding with us. She's um, now in her mid-20s, and she regularly tells me, Dad, take the phone away. Dad, switch the phone off. Uh, jokes and games. One of the things I learned early on was you've got to make it fun. So I would go to the, um, the internet and I would pick up, pull up kids' jokes, you know, those stupid little jokes that kids love to laugh at. And I, every day I would just read out jokes at the table and they would laugh till snot came out of their nose and uh, we'd play little games. One of the things we always did at the table were um, highs and lows. That means you go around the table, tell me what's good and what's bad in your day. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to make something up. So you better, uh, you better tell me. And, and we even do that with all the guests that came in our home. And out of that, we'd have the best conversations. We would talk about other topics like what's new? What did you learn new in school? And if they said, oh, I didn't learn anything today, I'd say, well, we're going to take you out of that school. <laughs> and then they would, they would tell me something. Oh, what if? We talk about hypotheticals constantly. You know, what would you, how would you make this decision? What if, what if somebody offered you drugs? 
What if your friend wanted you to go somewhere that dad and mom don't want you to go to? Um, how come? I, I taught my kids how to argue with the TV. Yeah. I, I challenged them to think about godly values, biblical values. How does the news portray it? How do the talk shows portray it? How do the sitcoms portray it? How does reality TV portray it? And not just to get sucked into things, but to actually think and to engage. All that happens at the dinner. When our kids were particularly naughty, that usually meant that they needed a little bit more TLC, we developed this thing called the special plate. It was just the one plate that didn't match all the other ones. But that plate was like this sacred experience. If that appeared in front of you, you knew that good things were going to come. <laughs> And so we had this little flower pot, and uh, we would give everybody a little piece of paper, and you had to write down three or four things that you liked about the other person. Of course, my son would complain about his sister, and he hated doing this, but he would write the same thing on every little piece, you know, paper, and we'd stick them in there, and my daughter would get to read all of these words of encouragement, and her whole attitude begin to change because of what we did at the table. Theme nights. We would have one time a, a red and white night. Everything on the table was either red or white. We had, uh, like, mince on toast. I put red food coloring in. It looked like total blood death. <laughs> and uh, everything was red or white. And you say, well, that's simple. But, boy, suddenly it's become an event. It's become fun. Uh, creative devotions. So I, I would actually act out Bible stories. I would grab a bed sheet. I would grab some prop in the house, and I would be Moses or... Mary or something, and we would act out the story, taught my kids how to memorize scripture. And uh, in our lounge room, we would deliberately arrange the furniture so we'd see each other. Not just the TV, but we would see each other. And there were times that we'd sit in the lounge without the TV on, and actually, this is really amazing. You ready? Talk. <laughs> it doesn't require electricity or a remote control or anything like that. You don't even have to pay for it. You're just totally free. So you're going to sit down together. Second is when you walk along the road. Think about it. How much time do you spend commuting with your kids in the car? I mean, thanks to traffic and the, you know, the, the greater region, Ipswich and Brisbane, do you, do you spend more time in the car than ever before? Yeah. Well, that is sacred time to God. Uh, in the car, when we're on the move, you and I can communicate in the midst of the commute that we have. That's my family. It's my son. He's now um, 24, and our daughter's 26. Um, our son, when he was 10, uh, he and I would sit in traffic. We lived in Hawaii at the time. My daily commute was three hours a day because of just so much traffic. It would be like driving from here to Brisbane, and it was just three hours a day. And there would be many times my son would be with me in the car in that long commute. So I started listening. In those days, we had cassettes. Remember those cassettes? <laughs> And I, I used to listen to audiobooks, and I was listening to, to a business leadership book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And I'm listening to the book for my benefit, thinking that my 10-year-old son is not listening. I turned it off because I thought, we really should talk. So I turned the thing off, and he said, Dad, turn that back on. I said, why, why do you? He said, I was listening, and that was really interesting. And so I turned it back on, and I discovered a whole new part of my son I never knew before that he had a deep interest in business, he had a deep interest in leadership. And so from the age of 10, he started listening to these books with me in the commute. And then it went another stage. I said, Levi, every time you, you want, you go to my library and you take a book that you want to read, and I will pay you the value of that book if you read that book and give me a report on the things that you read. 
And so we go around finding the highest priced books in my <laughs> library. And we had this deal. He read a number. He would always choose business leadership books. To this day, he's now in his mid-20s. What does my son do? He works with internet startup companies on the West Coast, helping to design iPhone apps based on the business principles that he learned when he was a kid in the daily commute. See, this was part of development of his life. And it wasn't just dead time or wasted time. My daughter, um, my daughter, who, her name is Laurel, she just loves shopping. You know, for guys, we don't, we don't go shopping, do we? We just hunt. <laughs> you walk into the store, you see it, you shoot it, you bag it, you take it home. Uh, for a woman, she goes shopping. My wife says, Laurel is amazing. She said, if I just need to know what's inside of Laurel's heart, we go shopping. Somewhere in the, in the middle of Meyer, it just all tumbles out. She said, she will tell me the most amazing things. Sometimes you just got to get them moving. I was talking to a, a mom just the other day, and she said, if I needed to know what was inside of the heart of my 17-year-old, I'd throw him the keys and say, let's go for a drive. Can I tell you, there's something about movement that begins to open up the heart. And in that process, you and I, as parents, can begin talking about things that really, really matter. And that brings us to the next one, which is when you lie down at night. One of the, the things that my dad did for us that was transformational was uh, there are five kids in the family. I was the youngest. My dad would visit the bedroom of every single kid until they finally left home at eight, 17 or 18, and he would pray with us at night. It started, of course, when we were very young, and it continued on. And you, you knew that Dad was making the rounds. I was always the last one. And he would come to your bedside. He would ask you about your day. If you had had some you know, little fight with a brother or sister, whatever, he would help you to think it through and sort it out. He would talk about the life problems that you were facing. And then he would put his hand on our head, and he would pray for us and say goodnight. I can hardly remember a night that my dad did not do that. I cannot think of any appointment other than eating that is more important than the significance and importance of visiting the room of your kid and praying with your child at night. I was chaplain, as I said, of a school, and I talked to many, many dysfunctional or students who came from dysfunctional families, kids that were high-risk kids. I've heard many, many, many sad stories of young people who have had tough lives. And as I've asked some questions about their lives, one of the questions I always ask a young person and somewhere along the way is, well, what happened when you went to bed at night? Did anyone ever talk to you? Did you ever read your story? Did anybody ever maybe even pray for you? And amongst all the dysfunctional young people that I met and who came from troubled backgrounds, I've never heard a single one of them say, yeah, dad and mom prayed for me. But I can also tell you, on the other hand, a lot of kids who've made it, and when I ask them that question, they say, yes, dad and mom prayed for me. I, it is just so significant. That moment when a child lies down at night to sleep, their heart is incredibly open. You know, oftentimes, you know, a teenager's room becomes that place where they slam the door and they hide on the other side. And by the way, doors are optional. <laughs> can I just tell you this? When doors are slammed, there's one way to cure that. It just, it's, a, it will, it's a surefire way. If you have a, a teenager who has a real attitude problem and they're slamming doors, screaming around the house, just say this. Slam the door, you lose the door. Just get the power drill out, take the, drill, the door off the, the frame, and they have no door. And after a couple of days of that, you'll find a total change of behavior. <laughs> but it starts when they're little. Visit their room. 
earn the right as a parent to be in that room and to step into that room and to step into the world and to hear life from their point of view and to pray with them at night. And their hearts begin to open. Again, if you have teenagers, one of the certain ways to find out what's inside of the heart of your teenager is stay up late and talk to them. The best stories you will hear from the teens in your life will always come somewhere after about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And if they're out and you give them a curfew, don't be asleep when they come home. You sit up and stay up and be awake for them when they come in the door because they're going to tell you everything that happened. Of course, then when you become empty nesters. <laughs> when our son moved out, I remember one night it was 11 o'clock and I was awake. I thought, man, when's that kid coming home? And then I realized he's never coming home again. <laughs> I'm an empty nester. So eventually it does come to an end. Uh, the last one <laughs> is when you get up in the morning. You know, the hallway of your house is not just a way to get from room to room. This is the place where significant conversations happen. I had friends that ran a home for young people who came up out of at-risk situations. And one of the first things they required of anybody who lived in the house was to say good morning. One of the most important things is to greet each other in the morning and just say good morning. And then also to say some positive things about your kids. Wake up expectancy in your family. Have you thought about what a battle it is for your kids? This morning I ran by some of the schools right around this property. There was a uh, state school, a primary school, a high school, and I saw the, the fences around them and the big schoolyards, and I thought of the thousands of children that will go to that school. It is a total battle. It, it just it can be demoralizing. You get picked on as a kid. There's, there's all the expectations of teachers. And is your kid ready for the battle that's going on when he steps out of the door? It's the words of hope. It's the words of expectancy. It's the words of affirmation that make such a difference, the things that are spoken in the hallways. I want you to see a, a picture of how this works in real life. This is a, a family at our church, Steve and Melissa Hopkins. And they adopted a little boy. You're going to see at the far right. His name is Jacob. He's from India. And you can hear his story. He was born without uh, one arm and with a misformed hand. And you're going to see how a home and a family can restore a broken life. Have a listen. I really believe that God puts experiences in your life. He brings people into your life. He provides relationships for you that um, kind of lead you on a path. I'm Steve Hopkins. And I'm Melissa Hopkins. We've been married for just about 10 years, and we've been attending Evergreen for 10 years. We just found ourselves every time we went out on a date, we would talk about expanding our family, and then right after that, we would start talking about adoption. And then in January, we saw 2010. Jacob's picture for the first time, and uh, got pretty excited. So Jacob was born with what's called Amelia and Focomelia, so he does not have his left arm at all. It stopped at the shoulder. Um, and then his right arm goes down to about where an elbow should be, and then his hand just consists of two fingers and a pincher grasp. Yeah, the process of adoption is long. It's tedious. And for us, it was almost a two-year process. Mm -hmm. It was quite a journey, quite a journey. So one of those touchstone moments was um, actually at Evergreen. Uh, one Sunday, um, they were showing 
uh, inspirational video of Nick Vujicic, who uh, came from Australia and was born without any uh, arms or legs. And the final scene of the video shows him jumping into a pool and swimming. And we looked at each other. We both were like tears streaming down our face. Nobody knew we were in the process of of adopting him or looking into adopting him and we're sitting in the back crying saying okay that's it he's gonna be ours and finally in September of 2010 we got a call from our agency saying there's been um, a human trafficking investigation that shut down all adoptions in the state where he lives and it was really hard because you know we had gotten pictures of Jacob, we had gotten video, I mean we had fallen head over heels for this kid and so to even have the thought that it may not happen was devastating. Was really devastating. You know there's nothing we could do except pray and pray and then um, kind of the turn of the new year in January of 2011 we finally got some news that things were starting to move and investigations were wrapping up and there was just some glimmers of hope that um, the process would continue and that we would be able to adopt him. The Friday before Mother's Day, we found out that we had passed court and we didn't have to do any more court dates. Um, he was ours. So we were able to go over, travel to India, and were able to uh, meet him for the first time on July 11th. Hi, Jacob. Sister, that's your sister. Hi, and I looked at him and he was sitting on my lap. I looked at Steve and I said, he is my son. Like, there was just no doubt in my mind. He was, he was mine, he was my son, and I felt that connection instantly. And so yeah. and you did too. It was Absolutely. miraculous actually how yeah. fast and how instant that was. He was part of our family from that moment yeah. on. It was pretty incredible. Yeah. That's the best sound in the world right there. That's the best sound in the world. <laughs> the two of them playing together. <laughs> yeah. He has a wonderful role model in Sophia. You know, Sophia is your typical active four-year-old and, and he just watches her and wants to do everything that she does. There you go. You're doing it. Good job. He, he just try to do anything. He can pick up a ball and throw a ball. He rides a, a tricycle. He's painting. He's writing letters. He holds a baseball bat. Brushes his teeth. A lot of self-care things. Uh, ultimately, we want him to walk with God. We want him to um, just listen to what the Lord would have him do with his life. Just a little bit of wondering, would it be the same with a biological child versus an adopted child and there's been absolutely no difference it's just been that unconditional love and and you know you know God is the same with all of us if we're that much willing to adopt Jacob how much more is God willing to have us be part of his family it's just it's just you can't even comprehend it Can I tell you the story gets even better? <laughs> that was two years ago. After Steve and Melissa adopted Jacob, uh, the most amazing surprise happened. They had twins. <laughs> they had twins.
and I have four kids. Last Sunday, I was at church, and I watched little Jacob. He was reaching. It was at the morning tea table, and it was this, this stacked, just uh, stack of uh, bickies. And I watched him just reach and reach and reach to get the one on the top shelf. And I thought of all the love of that family that's transforming life. And I know God wants to bless your family, too. Can I pray for your family? Let's just close our eyes for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, I want to lift up to you the dads and mums. I want to lift up to you the single mums, the single dads. I lift up to you the grandparents who are sometimes on the sidelines and are wanting to see things different than what they are or wanting to know how better they can be used by you. Father, we pray that you bless our families and you'd show us some simple things. Show us what to do when we sit, when we rise, when we lie down, when we get up, when we move along the road. Guide us by your spirit. You know, maybe while we're praying right now, you, you, you've experienced a lot of things today. Maybe you haven't been here before and there's, there's a sense of warmth and excitement here and love and community that what you're experiencing is the family of God. God is our father. His son, Jesus, invites us into the family. Are you a follower of Jesus? I want to give you an opportunity to become a follower of Jesus today. I'm going to lead in a prayer, a simple prayer, and you just pray the words after me, and your faith is going to make a difference, and we're all going to pray it together, so you're not going to be embarrassed. The entire church is going to pray. It's a simple prayer. Let's pray together. Let's go. Say, Dear Father, I thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, I need you in my life. Forgive me for my wrongs and give me a new start. I believe you're alive, so come live in me. And so I say this so I can hear it, so others can hear it, so the devil can hear it. Jesus Christ is my Lord, and I want to follow you. Thank you for giving me new life. Father, I pray that you would be with those who prayed that prayer for the first time. I pray you'd strengthen them in their journey. Your pastor's going to come up here now, and he's going to tell you some next steps. But thanks for letting me be here today.